We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. For the uninitiated, of course, this is a monthly chess book review slash recap, where instead of just interviewing someone, we read a book and then get together to discuss it, try to give you a few chess takeaways, uh, maybe increase your chess culture and history knowledge and uh, help you decide if a book is worthwhile. And this month, we will be talking about another super old chess book, another classic. Uh, It's called Chess Fundamentals by Jose Raul Capablanca, former world champion. And helping out this month, uh, graciously, is uh, Jesse Shikari. And so uh, before we welcome Jesse, just a tiny bit of background. She's relatively new to chess, uh, got into it in Queen's Gambit, but she's been active on chess Twitter and social media, uh, being a, a big part of the community, contributing a lot. You can hear about her background on the Chess Journeys podcast. Shout out to the Chess Journeys podcast where she goes deep into how she got into chess and she's doing some sort of um, 
web web design consultation uh, related to the chess world as well. And I'm sure she's got a few more things she can tell us as we welcome her to the show. So Jesse, thanks again for helping out this month. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so we've got a lot to talk about with the Kappa book. Um, but first, let's just get uh, uh, any more biography that, that people should know. So you discovered, and again, there's more depth in other interviews you've done that people can find, but um, you've, you discovered chess through Queen's Gambit, and then you you discovered the world, basically. You knew the game, you discovered the world. Um, and what's your experience been like with, uh, with chess books, Jesse? Oh, gosh. Um, well, so my, my favorite pastime is reading, so I was super excited to discover that there were so many chess books and then <laughs> quickly realized I cannot read this. <laughs> this is not in English or like understandable like to sit and read, right? And so that became this like push and pull of like more chess books. I can't read these. And like I keep acquiring them, but my knowledge is not um it's like it's like a big gap. <clears throat> so I haven't actually finished <laughs> this is like the first chess book I've finished that's not a tactics book. <laughs> so this has been uh, a really interesting um, like journey to go through. And I will preface by saying that I, I did read this book with my coach, my chess coach, because otherwise I, I would have a really difficult time reading this on my own. Okay. Yeah. And definitely, as you say, a lot of bibliophiles in the chess world, although of course in the, in the modern age, there's um, many other ways to, to learn chess. And I know, um, I know that you're using a lot of online tools as well, uh, as we can discuss. Um, but uh, we actually have a related question from friend of the podcast, Chris Wainscott, friend and supporter, Patreon supporter of the pod. So we might as well dive into that um, right away. So Chris asks, Jesse, he says, as a newer devotee to chess, how do you decide what book you should read next? Also, how do you go through the book? Are you playing guess the move? Do you go through the, all the analysis, et cetera? And Jesse, before we uh, answer Chris's question, you might just want to give like whatever online rating just to give people a bit of context. I mean, obviously we know you're new to chess, so um, um, we could discern from that that it, you're, you haven't earned your grandmaster title just yet. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm mm, so Lee Chess, I'm like a classical 800-ish on the okay. border of seven to eight and then rapid I'm like a 700 somewhere in there so so yeah I am definitely you know below a thousand for sure um and so I'm I'm still going on this journey and and asking questions and learning as much as possible um but it's been it's been a really interesting experience to learn this as and as an adult yeah, yeah, and we'll talk more about sort of how your your being relatively new to chess landed with the Capablanca book in particular. But first, let's uh, let's dive into Chris's questions. So, um, you know, you've been casting about for a book basically that's like proper for someone lo- knows what checkmate is, knows the rules of the game, but doesn't have much of a chess background beyond that. And I know you've bought way, as all of us chess players do, you've bought way more chess books than um, one can read or one should read um, based on your experience level. But so in your sort of fits and starts, and this being the first book that you finished, uh, what has your approach been? Do you do you try to guess the move um, and do you go through the variations and stuff like that? Yeah, so I, I will try to uh, follow it like 
part by part and make sure that I understand it. Um, something that I'm still doing, and I guess this is more like training wheels for, for like learning of writing in my books. So um, I write out each variation and write like number them on the board or around the board so I can make sure that I follow along so I can look back at it and go understand exactly what that is. Although I'm trying to stop doing that because um, I need to be able to do this in my head. So uh, when we worked on this book, like half of it I wrote on, like wrote in the book and the other half, because I, I was reaching a point where I needed to not do that and start like actually being able to read it. Um, so, so I did that and then I tried to just make sure I understand like the main points um, and how do I apply this stuff? What is, what is, I'm still learning like what I need to know against like, this will be good for later, or this will be something yeah. important to come back to because not everything is going to be relevant, um, initially. And, and how do I learn how to, um, bank certain information for when they actually do show up in a game? That's, that's definitely been a hard thing for me to, to understand of like, when is this actually important? And how do I maintain that, right? So when we talk about playing the, like the guess the move, I do that, but then I also have to think about like, how do I store that information for, for like when I need it? Yeah, and I'm sure it's not helped by, we were talking in one of our sort of uh, brainstorming sessions leading up to this, the fact that there, there just aren't that many books for adults for people rated below 1000. So I think that that the challenge is increased by the fact that a lot of the books you that end up getting recommended to you like are going to be challenging and this book fits into that category as we'll discuss even though they're ostensibly beginner books. They're not truly there there's always this sort of assumption that you one just magically has sort of a facility with the uh, the notation and and this book in particular as we'll discuss um it's it, it it's useful for a very broad range of rating, but I would say that's almost it's that's more of a detriment than a than a compliment in this case. Um, so um, before we we talk a bit more about the book, we we had one other Patreon mailbag question that I thought would be uh, good to um to address right away, and this one is more for me. So Jesse, if you're if you're ready, maybe you could uh, read the question from Mil Beso. I hope I said your name right, uh, Mil, I probably didn't. <laughs> sure. So when you do the book podcast, it'd be interesting if you could spend a few minutes on how you study games in books. I know you've covered this in some interviews in the past, but it's always interesting to hear about. Okay, yeah, and I do think that's a good question. And first of all, I got to give a shout out to the How to Chess podcast. We had uh, Grandmaster Davaran Koyasevich who wrote um, a book about choosing your own study plans, and that was the topic we discussed: the Grandmaster's advice for how to go through a game. Now, I'm only a washed-up master, but I can try to give my advice as well. And the main thing is, and this comes up a lot on the podcast, is just you always want to be favoring active learning over passive learning. So like what Chris Wayne's got asked about playing Guess the Move, like that's a great way to do it. Some people will even cover up the following move um, on, the, on, on their sheet. Like they'll have a piece of paper covering the following move and just try to guess the move. Try to engage with the material. I mean, often you're not going to understand why a move is made and you want to try to figure it out on your own. And then maybe from there, turn on an engine if you're using a um, computer 
to read the book. Um, so basically, you want to try to avoid just sort of mindlessly playing through the moves. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the main advice I could give. Um, I mean, I guess I would say um, depth over breadth, uh, especially as you're newer to chess, as you get more experienced and like you're trying to see like where people put their pieces and stuff like that. If you're trying to learn an opening, then it can be helpful to just go through a quantity of games. But if you're like a club player, it's better to try to understand as many moves as possible. And of course, that's why I often find myself recommending the books with uh, lots of annotations. And and we'll have more on that topic later. But I wanted to uh, bring it forward to what we need to know about the context of chess fundamentals before um, we actually uh, assess the book. So first published in 1921, um, of course, uh, Capablanca became world champion uh, shortly thereafter. He was in, when he, when this book was published, he was in the middle of an eight year, 63 tournament, uh, 63 tournament game unbeaten streak. So just staggering streak. And he's just, he's one of my favorite players of all time. Um, Cap, uh, Botfinick had a nice quote explaining sort of what it is that's so appealing about uh, the way that Capablanca played. Um, he said, Capablanca's play produced and still produces an irresistible artistic effect. In his games, a tendency towards simplicity dominated. And in this simplicity, there was a unique beauty of genuine depth. And that's what everyone basically says about Capablanca. And if you play through a bunch of his games, it really comes across. He's um, just a natural genius. He's not like this tactical wizard i mean all all world champions are amazing tactically but what he's best known for is just this sort of uh light touch of knowing where the pieces go and that's why like even if you're not able to calculate at a grandmaster level there's a lot to be gained from going through um his games a lot of people consider him to be one of the best players of all time and chess fundamentals i don't think it's ever come up on perpetual chess and all the book recommendations i've gotten so it is um you know, it is a classic, but it's not like my system. People aren't like bringing it up like every single week. I feel like it's having a bit of a moment now. And we'll talk about why that is um, shortly. Um, but but I mean, there, you know, again, Botfinick had a quote about it. He said, uh, it's without question, um, still timely and has value to players of all levels. He said that in 1984. And I mean, I'm sure if he were alive, he would be saying the same thing now. Um, and you know, Nick DeFermian, who wrote a version of, uh, of uh, he updated a version for McKay Publishing about uh, 15 years ago. And he wrote in his introduction that there's something like there's always something to learn from this book. He said it was absolutely the most instructive chess book that existed for half a century after it was written. Um, that might be true because that's because uh, it's an important qualifier, right, Jesse? So we might as well. I mean, we'll we'll give a little more background information. But what was your impression? Let's start with the readability of the book, Jesse. Mm, readability, interesting. So I guess I would say, I mean, it's it's obviously you know written a hundred years ago, so readability wise, it's definitely a little different. But um, I did find that you know, it took a little bit of time for me to understand what exactly he was like trying to tell me to do. Right. And then once I understood it and like actually made those moves, Oh, okay. I see what he's trying to say. Um, but also sometimes I was just like, why isn't this a little more succinct? There should yeah. be, there should be simpler ways to be able to say what you're saying. Right. Um, so that, that was kind of a, maybe, maybe just a difference of, 
a modern reader approaching a book that's, you know, a classic. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, as someone who recently read and reviewed my system, it's way more readable than my system, I will say. Um, <laughs> but but those of you who heard my uh, recap with I am Christoph Zalecki, um, that's not saying all that much. Um, so it's readable in that respect. But I definitely have some some qualms with this sort of uh, the expository style of the book. I mean, there's just it's a little bit scattershot what is explained and what isn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that that's um, something we'll be getting into a bit more, obviously, but uh, just a, a few general points. Um, this is another book that's in the public domain. So it's similar to my system. There's versions absolutely everywhere. Uh, I mentioned the McKay version, which is uh, not, not that beloved online. Every man chess did a nice job on their version of the book. There's a lot of sort of fly-by-night <laughs> publisher books, so be careful what you buy on Amazon. And then, of course, we got to give a shout-out to Martin Eustacen, Say Chess. And part of the reason I was mentioning that the book is having a moment is he just came out with his own edition. Of course, he's been on the podcast. He wrote these um, blindfold puzzle books that are really good. Um, and he reproduced it in sort of the way I think that a lot of people newer to chess would like, like very, very healthy use of diagrams mm -hmm. um, and really uh, big text, clear prose. So he didn't alter the content of the book to his credit, but he made it nice and presentable and very pleasant to read. And he sent one to both of us. So again, shout out to Martin. So um, our, our review of the book itself, I think, is going to be kind of lukewarm. But if you do buy it, <laughs> if you do buy it, definitely, uh, I think Martin's book is the way to go. Um, I think Every Man Chess might have an e-reader if you prefer to read on computers. And the other thing is, again, because it's in the public domain, even Lee Chess Studies has the book in three different parts. So um, obviously, again, if you're going to buy it, we recommend Martin's, but if you're on a budget or would rather read on a computer, you don't even need to buy it. You can just play through it on Lee Chess's study. And, um, when you play through it on Lee Chess's study, you can't have the computer on because of the person who, the kind person who created it had computers disabled. But if you clone the study to make it your own, you can then put the engine on. So if you're sort of struggling with the material, that can be a good way to to check with the engine. So Jesse, I know that you've described yourself as an old school book reader. So I'm guessing you mostly use the Martin's copy for this? Yeah. So I actually had one of those fly-by-night Amazon editions at first, and mm -hmm. it was it was too small. Everything was cramped in. And because I write all over my books, there wasn't any space for me to do this stuff. So when Martin was like, oh, I'm sending this book, I was like, oh, cool. And then it showed up and I was just like, oh my God, there's space to write and make notes and be able to see the board without it, it being too, like I could just see it without doing too much. So when I talked about how I add the variations onto diagram, I actually had the space to do that. I didn't have to like take notes on a notebook or something because I'm, I'm really tactile. So I have to just write everything down. Um, so I was just so happy that this edition has the space to be able to sort of study it. Yeah. Martin did a great job and um, I, I think he's charging 10 bucks for the book, um, which is a, a steal. I mean, you know, qualms with the book, notwithstanding, you can certainly get a uh, $10 worth of uh, reading material for it. Um, I should have checked this before, but <laughs> I'm going to take a quick look on the price. Uh, there it is. Sponsored contact. 
content, Martin, with the uh, ad going on Amazon. Yeah, nine seventy five. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, we're gonna um, actually talk about the structure of the book and what even more about what we think of the book. But first, let's uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by our longtime sponsors, our original sponsors, Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to help you remember openings, tactical patterns, whatever it is that you're working on. They have a huge library of courses, including the free short and sweet versions of various openings. Speaking of openings, they just dropped Lifetime Repertoires, The London System by Grandmaster Lequang Liam. Love or hate the London, you got to know what to do against it. So be sure to take a look for that. And don't forget to sub to the How to Chess podcast hosted by yours truly. We just had Peter Fiddler on, other big guests in the works. So all the links you need are in the show description. Let's get back to talking chess. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we are back, and I did verify the price, and it's under $10 for Martin's version, so definitely a bargain if you're going to buy it. We also forgot to mention um, if you're for whom this book is most appropriate. Again, that's kind of a, a loaded question, but a friend of the pod, Justine Langstrand, whose book reviews I, I always enjoy, Potzer's Review, he guessed 1200 to 1600 He He recently wrote a review of Chess Fundamentals that I'll link to. Um, I agree on the 1200 as... Jesse, I think will will help us illustrate. It's not despite its title for brand new players, but on the high end, I would go even higher than sixteen hundred. I mean, you know, this is a world champion explaining his moves, um, and he's often not sugarcoating things. So I think at least like it might even go up to two thousand. And again, mm-hmm. as we were saying earlier, that's kind of that's not necessarily a great thing if um, yeah. you know if you're serving too many masters. It's it's not. Um, not serving anyone perfectly. Um, But anyway, the structure of the book, you know, Capablanca, of course, famous, especially for his endgame play, uh, just um, had an incredible ability to to extract wins from tiny advantages and make it look easy. And that was sort of his philosophy of chess. He was known for not being like a big opening theoretician, even in those days where openings were not as advanced. He kind of had a disdain for studying openings. Um, and he wrote and studying chess generally as a world champion, he was known as this sort of natural genius who, uh, didn't work as hard at the board as many of the, or away from the board as most of the world champions. Um, so Capablanca, I, I relied for some background material. Edward Winter, famed, awesome chess historian has a, a great, um, book about Capablanca. So I got a few background quotes from that. And he said, I began with the ending as that is the proper place to start. And sure enough, he does begin uh, with endgame and uh, basic checkmates from the beginning. But um, we'll talk, and the chapters are first principles, which is endgame, further principles, which is endgame, planning a win in middle game play, which is middle game, (laughs) general theory, um, again, kind of middle game, endgame strategy, further openings in middle games, and then finally 
uh, 14 illustrative games. Um, so kind of, and it's a little bit scattershot. And uh, again, in reading Edward Winter's book, um, some of the material I think was culled from like journal entries that he'd written again, similar to my system. So that, that might contribute to, um, they're not being a sort of unifying theme in the book, as, as again, we'll discuss. But first, we have a great big block quote that I pulled from the winter book, a speech that, uh, that Capablanca gave in 1932, which is about the book, but also about his philosophy of chess. Here is the quote. Capablanca said, Anyone wishing to progress in chess must consider the game as a whole that may be divided into three parts. The first phase to which the majority of people devote the most time and study is the opening. The second is called the middle game, which comes immediately after the opening. This is studied less than the opening, and it may be the least studied phase of the game. Lastly, there is the end game, which is also not studied with the same intention and devotion as are the openings. Eleven years ago, I wrote a book, and instead of starting, as all books do, with the opening, I began with the ending, believing that this was the proper place to start. You will readily understand that it is much easier to handle one or two pieces than all the pieces together. Moreover, it's a curious but true fact that no player becomes world champion or even a contender for the title unless you give serious attention to the end game. And then he goes on to talk about the sort of well-known problem of if you just remember an opening but don't understand it, you won't uh, know what to do. Uh, obviously, that's a, a struggle that that carries on to this day. So I I think it's a you know I I like the philosophy and I like that even amongst the world champions, there's such different approaches to chess and chess improvement. And even the idea of putting the end game first, I think is uh is pretty cool. Um, but the choice of the end games is a bit odd. Jesse, why don't you uh, take us through your experience, like uh, right from the beginning um, of uh, where he starts with the Rook and King checkmate as the very first thing he presents in the book. Yeah. So when we started there and once I, I sort of got the hang of what he was trying to say, I was like, Oh, this is easy for even for me. Right. Like, so I'm excited. Cause I'm like, Oh, cool. Like I am not going to be completely behind uh, right from the outset. So I was ready. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So I recognize some of these things, things I've already learned as a beginner. And, uh, and then that pretty much changed not, <laughs> not too long after <laughs> and I started falling behind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. And it's a big jump, like the Rook and King checkmate. He does at the beginning, uh, the two bishops checkmate, and then in very short order, he's doing some king and pawn end games, which start basic, but it escalates quickly. Um, and I think that's sort of the general issue with this book. And it's common that when you're the best player in the world, you're not like every time, you know, every, when, I've been lucky to interview Peter Svidler a few times, and he's very self-aware and always says, like, I'm the worst teacher in the world. Um, because he, he knows that as a, and of course it's not true in his case, but he knows that as a world-class player, a lot of things are, seem second nature to him. Um, and Capablanca often has very incisive explanations, but again, the things he chooses to explain are kind of, um, it's hard to predict. And certainly it doesn't seem like, um, at the beginning with the Rook and King checkmate, I feel like it's very thorough. And if you didn't know how to do it when you were reading it, you actually could learn from the book. But then in the more advanced stuff, it's actually less thorough. And the other thing is, again, it's just like, uh, who are you serving? You know, if you 
if you've got Rook and King checkmate at the beginning and like Grandmaster battles at the end with sparse annotations, <laughs> like who is your target audience? Um, and, you know, again, this book was written a hundred years ago. Um, so of course there just might not have been as much planning. People would have been happy to get any book by a world champion. So, uh, within the context of when it was published, I'm sure it was revolutionary, but it's just, he's got to compete with these good modern books. And of course we'll have some alternative recommendations um, later. Now I do want to be clear. There is amazing stuff sprinkled throughout. It's just, again, it's um, not entirely clear who the target audience is and how the material was like how the layout other than the end game first principle was, was designed. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, when I first opened the book and I looked at the table of contents, I was like, I don't know who, like, what am I going to learn from this? Because it's not clear, even though we talk about like general theory as part of um, like the middle game, but at the same time, it doesn't doesn't say middle game, right? It just says, you know, when you look at the table of contents, it tells you, you know, if it's going to be opening middle and end game. And so there's like, three different chapters on middle game, yeah. but it's, it's in the beginning, the middle and the end of the book. And so I was just like, I don't like, I already don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. And I, I found that um, a little concerning. And I, to me, it would have made sense to have the general theory at the beginning um, of the book, because, you know, you want to cement, like, here's what you're going to learn. Right. And then you're going to see it played out across these games and these examples. Um, and so I, yeah, once I, I sort of hit the point past, past like the pawn promotions and things like that, I did start learning new stuff. The, the blocked position, um, some of the like, the, um, the part about the, the knight versus the bishop. Like I also thought that the knight was more important than a bishop because it can do more. But then I realized he was right. That like, oh, a bishop is like a stronger piece than a knight. Okay, that's that. I just learned something new. Good. Um, but at the same time, by the time I got there, all those, like, I can only calculate about two to three moves ahead. And that's about it. Anything more than that, it's not easy for me. So the fact that after a little while, things get, like, go off the deep end, I was like, whoa. Um, and while I was working on this with my coach, he had to help me, like, through some of this stuff, he was like, okay, like, I know you're not gonna be able to see what he's trying to tell you. So here, let me help you a little and like give you a little foundation. And then you can do like the core point of any particular example. And I was like, this, like, part of me was wondering, like, did the word fundamentals change over a hundred years? Right, yeah. This is not, this is not fundamentals. If, if, you know, I have to get like a boost to understand what, he's trying to tell me and then it becomes kind of counterintuitive right yeah yeah and there's there's a lot of that and what you say about the the relative value of the pieces is um is a good observation Uh, another quote from kappa blanco from the edward winter book uh kappa said what will come as a shock to most players will be the relative value of bishop and knight in the end game contrary to popular belief the bishop is the stronger piece in the last 20 years chess has made enormous strides and many of the old masters are proven wrong on this point and he also said i challenge anyone to produce a work of such accuracy on first appearance and 
I actually, I think both of those are amazing points and it is important to sort of remember how far ahead of his time he was. And even in terms of the accuracy, like um, Jesse, I know you had mentioned in our, in our brainstorming um, that, that you were curious, like how it, you know, how it holds up to sort of modern analysis. And first of all, like, I, obviously I should say like, left to my own devices, I would not be remotely qualified to critique the accuracy of uh, Capablanca's moves. But I, I did look through it with an engine, um, with the, the Lee Chess web engine, since I was able to so easily on the Lee Chess study. And it is remarkably accurate. I mean, there's one or two, like there's one game where like, you know, it goes from equal to minus six on one mistake that he makes. And he doesn't even mention, he doesn't even give that move a note. Um, and, you know, there's only 14 games. So, like, if you're not sort of sort of as to, to what Jesse was saying, he's not doing an amazing job, like, highlighting the critical moments. But, again, there are some sort of some very good uh, explanations. And his his analysis often was very accurate and notably accurate, even in com- just errors notwithstanding, compared to, to other books. So, again, it's it's a mixed bag. And one other thing I wanted to add on the basic mates thing, even though he does an amazing job explaining these basic mates, um, they're, I think, uniquely suited to learning on computer. If you're doing, if you want to learn a rook and king checkmate, I mean, Lee Chess and chess.com and, and chessable, and they all have drills you can do. And to practice those against the computer is just like, you know, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. You know, when, when I was a kid, you needed some, you needed a person. And if you didn't have a person, like you had to try to learn it from a book. But now there's clearly for repeating a specific sequence to end the game, there's nothing better than um, practicing against a computer. So even the part that's like explained well, it's not necessarily like the right place for it. So again, there are some great observations you will definitely learn from the book. But um, but yeah, it's uh, disjointed, as <laughs> you could say. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, like the, there's that part of like the relative value of the pieces where it's like a whole page of like, you know, the bishop will be stronger than the pawns than the knight. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And so my coach and I had to go line by line every single, and I had to, you know, so that part of the book is actually written up with like, this is for attacking, this is for, you know. Yeah, let me, let me actually read a few of them. We won't, we won't read them all, but just to give listeners a bit more context. So yeah, he was big on comparing the relative value of the pieces. And he says, for all general theoretical purposes, the bishop and the knight have to be considered as the same value, though it is my opinion that the bishop will prove the more valuable piece in most cases. And it is well known that two bishops are almost always better than two knights. So, okay, that comment obviously has aged well. Um, Mm -hmm. The bishop will be stronger against pawns than the knight, and in combination with pawns will also be stronger against the rook than the knight will be. So, as to what Jesse's saying already, you've got to read that one a few times (laughs) to try to understand. And then it goes on like that. A bishop and rook are also stronger than a knight and rook, but a queen and knight may also be stronger than a queen and a bishop. And that's one that you do hear a lot of grandmasters um, say that, although um, John Watson, when he wrote uh, Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy, did like a big data dive of like analyzing, uh, isolating end games where you have a queen and knight and a queen and bishop. And and what what he found, there was no sort of um, empirical proof that a queen and knight is better than a queen and a bishop, but it's at least like 
it's more of a fair fight. You know, you can you can attack on both color complexes, whereas with a queen and a bishop, that's uh, more challenging. Um, a bishop will often be worth more than three pawns, but a knight very seldom so and may not even be worth so much. A rook will be worth a knight and two pawns or a bishop and two pawns. But as we said before, the bishop will be a better piece against the rook. And then there's like two more of them. And I can totally see, Jesse, how that could be like three hours of lessons just trying to deconstruct <laughs> like what it is he's saying in that like little paragraph. Yeah, and even even the one of like, you know, a bishop will often be worth more than three pawns, but a knight very seldom so and may not not be worth so much. Like, I... I mean, is there like, what is, is that, is that still true? Like, is it just like a, a context specific situation of like, it depends, you know? Yeah. I mean, in most cases, you're definitely going to prefer a bishop, but I wouldn't, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it in the formulation of a knight just isn't going to be as good as three pawns. I think it's very context specific. Okay. Yep. See, that, that's what I mean. Like, I, how would I, I, I wouldn't know that as a beginner, and so, so like, for example, the first, the first part of, you know, talking about the, the bishop will prove more valuable than like a knight. And then it's this, oh, an open position. Okay. Now I know that that's good for an open position, but I wouldn't have known that from reading it because there's no context. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was something that really drove me nuts. Um, he leaves a lot to the reader's devices to figure out what exactly he means. That's not yeah. helpful for a beginner. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to like put anyone on blast, Jesse, but do you remember like how, how was it that you came, that you decided this was the book to read? I mean, I know there's so many recommendations given in so many places, not least this podcast, um, <laughs> th that it can be hard, hard to keep up. But do you remember um, like uh, how you settled on this book? Multiple people told me to read this book. Wow. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> okay. I mean, and I hadn't, I hadn't read it previously. Um, so and again, it's there's some great moments in it and some great explanations and the games really could keep you busy for a long time. I mean, 14 games and the fact that he, six of them are games that he lost, that's that's very rare and uh, shows a sort of humility and, uh, you know, dedication to learning from, from his own losses. I think that's quite admirable um, and it was rare, especially at that time, but um, it's it's a lot of work to study on one's own. Um, and yeah. you know, maybe it's, maybe it's optimal. Maybe it's a good way to study. Maybe it's not. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, and does, generally, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say he does that whole thing of like, you know, the reader can figure out what they need to, to know. Yeah. From this. And I was like, you can't do this to me <laughs> because it says, he even says like, you know, the book is only a guide. And it's yeah. really up to the the learner to figure out what they need, and if they have a teacher, then that's that's best. But not everybody has a coach, and so you know, I, I don't know what what the context of like you know players in the nineteen twenties might have had, but you would think that he would dole out more of of his insight to particular components rather than being like uh, this game resigns and and the the reader will will understand why. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's got like, you know, 30 pages after he's teaching you how, how a king and rook mate, he has literally a 10 move combination um, oh, that, that he's showing. Yeah. And it's, 
And it's a cool combination and it's fairly linear. You know, it's not a lot of sort of variations, but but still like the idea that that someone new to chess, someone that didn't know the king and rook checkmate is then going to be like learning a, a, ten, a 10 move combination. Like, you know, some the material is wrong for one of the people. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> e- either either it's for someone who didn't need the king and rook mate or the rest of the book is is too advanced, which was the case for Jesse. And again, it's not yeah. not your fault at all. <laughs> um, but the, that's just uh, what ended up happening. But I mean, his end game stuff, I do want to say it's, it's brilliant. If you are, say, mm-hmm. I would say... 14, 1500 USCF, and you're looking to improve your endgame, playing through his endgame sections, his explanations of uh, of how to convert an advantage. He's got some nice sort of uh, uh, examples of what we now call the principle of two weaknesses, which we didn't call then. He has like a two, the one that holds two, where there's like a pawn duo on one side and against one pawn, but the one pawn is able to stop the two pawns. He's got lots of good examples and, and decent explanation, although generally it averages maybe an annotation every five moves or something like that. Which um, I found not helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the the sort of broader, well, first of all, I mean, again, when this was written, I think people were just so glad to have a chess book. I mean, it was just <laughs> such a such a different age that, that you know, you will, um, things have changed a lot and that they weren't competing with... Uh, you know, John Bartholomew's chest fundamentals series, which is on YouTube, which is a, yeah, good, good uh, alternative. Jesse and I will pick up this conversation in a minute, but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood is a subscription-based instructional website founded by Grandmaster Avtech Gregorian, who you can hear on episode 192 of Perpetual Chess. Founded by Avtech and his team of Grandmasters, there's a huge library of opening, middle game, and end game videos. There's special events like webinars, streams, one-on-one blitz games. Every Chess Mood member gets a consultation call with one of the uh, Grandmaster coaches. And also be sure to check out Chess Mood's free content. Avtech has a great blog. They also have a YouTube channel where they're posting videos from Grandmasters daily. So links you need are in the show description, but be sure to check out ChessMood.com. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess, of course, collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you an actionable study plan. So it's a great resource for players and coaches alike. It tells you how you compare to your rating peers in openings, end games, time management, all that stuff. It told me I was behind on the clock in 87% of my recent Blitz games. I think I might need to work on that. And thanks to AimChess for pointing that out. But it's a great product. Go to AimChess and check it out. And if you decide to try out a subscription, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. As always, the info you need is also in the show notes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I reached out to a friend of the podcast, Fred Wilson 
uh, just to sort of, you know, Fred knows his chess history uh, like no other. So I was curious, I, I had asked him about some of the different editions of the book, but also just sort of his opinion. Um, because I always feel a little bad, <laughs> you know, uh, being sort of like, you know, club level, decent club level player, weak master, whatever, criticizing the, the works of these legends. It feels uh, feels a little odd. But on the other hand, I you know, the it's very hard deciding what to devote your time to. Um, and I just feel like there are better choices. So anyway, I asked Fred what he thought. And I have a quote from Fred of Fred Wilson Books in Union Square in New York City, the only chess bookstore in New York City. So if you're in it, check out Fred's store. You can also hear an interview I did with Fred um, for Perpetual Chess. And of course, uh, patrons of the show used to be able to hear his uh, old interview show, which had some gems um, as well. So anyway, here's what Fred said. Finally, finally, back in the dark ages, we fought our way through the classics, trying to understand them because we really wanted to get better. If you didn't, you remained a potzer, though perhaps with some tactical talent, you could beat your equally lazy friends. Someone once wrote that until you realize that chess is not just a random series of tactical opportunities, you will never really become a good player. So pushing through Kappa's notes to six of his serious losses should always be helpful. So... And I think that's kind of what it comes down to is like, how useful is it to sort of torture yourself for explanations that aren't there, (laughs) um, that aren't provided, I should say, Um, you know, the the truth is in there. And that's how people used to learn. But that's because there was no choice. So and I'm not I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not, you know, I can only guess. But it seems to me like it's probably not the optimal use of one's time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you do you have other books, I know you said you didn't finish any other prose books, Jesse, but have you come across somewhere you were reading and you're like, ah, this is more like it? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I'm just going to peek over at my, my bookshelf for a minute. Okay. And if you um, want, Jesse, I could give a few of my, uh, my yeah. counter recommendations while you do sure. that. Okay. Um, so regular listeners aren't going to be surprised mm-hmm. by most of my recommendations. I tend to repeat myself. Um, but one that uh, I haven't mentioned that much um, is uh, Patrick Wolf, Grandmaster Patrick Wolf, who's been on the show. It used to be called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Chess, but now I believe it's called Learn to Play Chess Like a Boss. I picked up the new version um, because I was thinking for Jesse, you know, first. I was thinking for someone like Jesse, brand new to chess, but doesn't want to read a kid's book, like what should they read? And Patrick does a great job and he starts even more basic than the King and Rook. I mean, I believe he starts with how the pieces move, but it's sort of presented in a much more logical. He introduces you to all the basic tactics. Then he introduces you to some basic, basic strategic concepts and does a really good job explaining things. So if you're like your first chess book, after you know what checkmate is, I think that's a great choice. And then as you advance from there, to probably what Jesse's level is now and towards sort of like a 1,000 USCF FIDE. That's where the recommendations get a little bit more familiar. I've They've definitely been mentioned before on the show. You know, Neil Bruce, shout out to Neil, always recommends First Book of Morphe. And I was getting tired of uh, repeating his recommendation without checking it out myself. So I ordered it and checked it out. And I totally see how it could be super helpful because unlike this book, it has many, many annotations. And as uh, Peter Giannatos recently talked about on the pod, when you go back in time to like the era of Morphe, where he was just thrashing his opponents, you know, there's more to learn from that than like, um, 
you know, these Capablanca Marshall games that came, you know, some decades later because the, the, it was a much fairer fight. Whereas Morphe was just so far ahead of his peers that you can really learn from the more basic mistakes that people will counter. And, and you don't have to do all the hard work of figuring out your explanations on, on your own. Um, so, and then of course, for Capablanca himself, there's Irving Chernov's uh, Capablanca's Endgame book, which again is more advanced. I mean, that's probably again, 1400 on up, but there's logical chess move by move by Chernov did a podcast about it. So there are good choices. And, um, you know, in another exchange with Fred, he was saying like, and I meant there's always Jeremy Silman. There's lots of explanations. And Fred brought up a point that maybe some people don't, don't like to be spoon fed. They might feel like it's uh, too much. Um, Jesse, do you think it's possible to have like too many annotations in a chess book coming from your perspective? No, never enough. I need to know yeah. exactly what people were thinking. And then, you know, do so I understand, right? I need the context. And I think that's, that's part of the problem of it's not spoon fed. And so depending on what kind of person you are, it could either be a challenge of like, oh, you're not going to spoon fed, spoon feed this to me. So I'm going to figure it out. Or it's just too open ended and you're just going to get bored and skip. Yeah. And that's sort of how I feel too. Now I've been reading this book called Make It Stick. Um, when I interviewed Dr. Christopher Chabri, um, he recommended it as sort of a good guide to the science of learning and sort of like how we remember things. And they had a quote that resonated with me as I was sort of grappling with these questions while reading this book, which is, it's not that the failure, so they're talking about not understanding something. It's, it's not that the failure that's desirable, it's the dauntless effort, despite the risks, the discovery of what works and what doesn't, that sometimes only failure can reveal. It's trusting that trying to solve a puzzle is better than being spoon-fed the solution, even if we fall short in our first attempts at an answer. As we said earlier, the process of trying to solve a problem without the benefit of being taught is called generative learning. So, you know, the basic point they're making, obviously, and this is something, again, that comes up when uh, grandmasters sort of uh, preach against just memorizing moves in the opening. They're like, you, like um, Grandmaster Ganguly, when I interviewed him, said it's a sin. You have to understand every move that you're memorizing, um, even if it requires a lot of work. And, you know, again, I wouldn't be qualified to disagree with these neuroscientists anyway, but it rang true to me in terms of how people learn chess. And Avtrek Gregorian recently wrote a blog post about uh, sort of how grandmasters remember openings better because they know context better. And I think that's true, but that doesn't mean that this is the book that you should be like spending 12 hours deconstructing. Right. Like, yeah. cause again, it was written at a time when like, you, bear, you might not even have anyone to play. You know, you might just be in your house. You don't have anyone to play. You're looking to learn chess. And this is the one book you have. So in that case, okay, it's better than nothing. But now you always have your own games to study. You know, mm -hmm. un, you can play infinite of your own games and learn from those. So, of course, we need to learn from the masters as well. But I think those things come in time, you know, like um, – if you're a newer player learning from Capablanca, you're going to need a lot of explanations and you're going to need, honestly, like a sort of disrepresentative sample, a uh, misrepresentative sample of his games. Um, they can't be like the most advanced ones. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but uh, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, no, I agree. And the thing, the interesting thing about that quote that you just read about the falling short, I don't think this, it's good to have a challenge. It's just, can you actually meet that bar? And the one thing about chess that um, has been really interesting journey is the like high barrier of entry 
to actually get into it where you're not constantly losing all the time and, you know, things like that. And so when I, I think, I think the, the high barrier of entry makes it hard for new people to get into it. And so when you kept, like you mesh the, the quote and this book together, it, Kappa Blanca just feeds right into the high barrier of entry for new people. And that makes it difficult. But I agree that when you actually do meet that challenge and work through this stuff, you do learn it better. But at the same time, if it's not, there's not a lot of context. And I think context is one of the hardest things to understand about chess um, as a new person, because so much of it depends on your experience, right? The more experience you have, the better, like, easier it becomes to um, address certain problems. But until you have that experience, it's very difficult to understand why something is important or um, how to defend against particular things that might come up. Um, so I agree, just a caveat of this book is not the best example of how to help yourself learn in, and meet that, that knowledge gap. Yeah. And again, even for the players, I would say for whom, like Jesse, again, it wasn't the best choice for her experience level. But if you are, say, 14, 1500 USCF or FIDE, um, I think it's a decent choice, but it will be hard work figuring out um, a lot of the moves and it will be a, a bit uneven. Um, the book's a pretty quick read. Like, um, you know, if you're not spending hours trying to uh, sort of figure out what's underneath the surface in terms of the lack of uh, annotations in some situations. I mean, you could read it in like four hours, you know, it's not, um, it's not a super long book. And I think for say 1400 to 1800, there's plenty of worthwhile material. Um, but I think there's other, there's other good choices too. And again, just in terms of uh, comparing a, a, you know, calling a, spade a spade, even Chernev's Capablanca book, um, Capablanca's Best Chess Endings, I would prefer that to uh, Capablanca's own words, which I, again, it might be considered like blasphemous to some people who are like, you know, you have to read the world champions in their own words, you know, but I mean, most of the, you know, the audience are not going to be world champions. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, I think, better to, to, be spoon-fed. I'm on team spoon-fed. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But I will say that there, there's something about um, about reading a book that's not the most ideal book to start with. So, like, uh, it's good to read read the classics, right, and understand why they're good, but also understand, like, why they're classics and why maybe it's not always the best choice, if that makes sense. So if you, if you have a, like, for this book, I was like, okay, so I found, I got some good information out of it. And there was some information that's too advanced for me. Okay, so we put that aside. And then what do I like? What don't I like? And I think that's a good way to still inform yourself about what what you want out of a book moving forward. What are you looking for? Um, you know, maybe not everybody likes, you know, classical like literature, for example. And it's the same thing. It's just, is this is this helpful? You know, does it did it, did it advance my knowledge? Yes. So like quite simply, yes, but, but the caveat is, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that wasn't helpful. So it didn't yeah. balance out. And so I think it's, it's also important to analyze as a reader, like why this book was helpful, but it, the recommendation is definitely like, 
it's this is good, but context, <laughs> depending on what you want to get out of the book, or maybe just even particular chapters, like the first three chapters, I think were the most helpful for me. Um, and then once I started reading chapters four, five, and six, or four and five, I can't remember which one was the one with the and the game annotations, but um, you know, how, what can you get out of it? I don't think there's anything wrong with picking up a book, only reading two or three chapters and then putting it down because eventually I'll come back to this when I'm, you know, 1400 player and this will make more sense or things will just come to me faster um, with time and experience. Yeah. And again, the fact that Martin's only charging 10 bucks for his book and that you can read it for free online um, without, you know, without violating copyright laws um, means that, that you, as Jesse said, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can pick and choose. And just, just playing through the games and seeing his notes is pleasant. Although, again, I mean, I maybe maybe I'm just uh, too, too much in favor of spoon feeding. But I, even with the games, I could have used a little bit more of like, I lost because of this, you know. And at the mm-hmm. end of each chapter, you know, these days, a lot of authors, I think, have figured out that people like review puzzles. They like bullet points sort of summarizing. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, this is a hundred year old book. And. Um, you've got to be careful if you're going to mess with the original text. Um, you know, Nick DeFermi in, in the version he did for McKay, he added some modern games, including his own games. And like even a grandmaster like Nick DeFermi and like not everyone liked that he did that. So it's um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of messing with the text. But I'm sure that someone could do sort of a modern, more expository treatment that used the original material in, in a better way. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I'd still give the book a, you know, I think for someone Jesse's level, I'd give it like a D, but, <laughs> but for someone, uh, rated 1500, I would give it like a B, B minus something like that. There's plenty of useful stuff. It's just, it's a, a little bit harder work than a lot of the chess learning that you need to do these days. Um, so Jesse, can you think of anything concrete that that you learned from this book? I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just curious as we start to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, so I think some of the stuff um, that I think were good was good. So the Rook King um, checkmate is now like muscle memory to me, which is good. Um, the the like the relative value actually was kind of helpful. I might have uh-huh. to just kind of keep coming back to it the more I learn just to make sure that I fully understand it. Um, I think, so something that's interesting to me about chess is that everything depends on context. And because this book completely lacks context, that that's added an extra value of like the analytics of, do I actually understand what I'm learning? So the block position was really helpful. And it's actually stuff I've seen in like titled games where I've seen people do the like color like I think Anish Gary moved all of his pieces off the off into white, all the white squares when he was playing Nepo once, and I was like, "Oh, that's what he did." I understand now. You know, so like where one side was completely blocked, the pawn structure was locked, or what do you mean by the block position? So yeah, that page. Uh, let me see. Oh, sorry. Okay. No worries. Yeah. So the the blocked position that I found interesting because. Um, it was something that I didn't understand very well. 
And so I found that really helpful of like understanding the role of the pawns and the bishops. So like, for example, pawn structure, I'm, I, I know what it is and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I found that helpful. Um, and then also just the idea of that Kepa Blanca talks about how you, you can use um, like you can use the square, like the color squares to your advantage, right? That is also something I, I understand in theory, but have not actually put into practice. But because the uses it, I found that helpful. Like, okay, here's a way that I could implement it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, I mean, it's it's pretty advanced, you know? Um, mm -hmm. He has some, and speaking of the structures, he uh, has a couple sort of pawn skeleton positions. Uh, he, he really liked the French where he talks about sort of where the pawn breaks are, similar to what Neil Bruce and I were discussing in the pawn pod where you know, you can sort of see the the. It, it was probably one of the first uh, examples of its kind where it's just isolating where the pawns are, as is done in uh, chess structures and um, pawn structure chess and many other more modern books. So there, there is again there there is some great stuff in here, but it's just the the batting average is uh, uh not that high, and uh, and yeah, but bigger bigger criticism is just the the number of explanations i mean mm -hmm. um stuff that i'm sure seems second nature to him uh his intended yeah. audience uh does does not seem second nature to one what one would presume is the intended audience of a book called chess fundamentals um, yeah i thought it was interesting that the queen against rook area it says this is one of the most difficult endings yeah, without yeah. Pawn. Yeah. and i was like why is this in here? Like yeah, and it and he does do a good job explaining sort of the bare essence, but but again, and so it is useful for certain people. It's just you've got to pick and choose. Um, yeah. All right, I feel like we're kind of repeating ourselves, <laughs> so we sh we should wrap up. Um, so yeah, so Jesse, first of all, thank you. Um, I also wanted to uh, make a donation to a chess charity. On your behalf, I appreciate all this work that you've done. Um, and what do you think, Jesse? Who should we support? Ooh, um, let's do uh, Chess in the Slums. Okay. Shout out to Tunde and Aaron and the team at Chess in the Slums. Happy to support them. Again, you can hear my interview with them. They're doing amazing work in uh, Nigeria and possibly beyond someday. Um, you. So thank you, Jesse. And a um, couple housekeeping notes. Um, we are going to do a throwback and do a blindfold chess puzzle or two blindfold chess puzzles at the end. There has been overwhelming demand. One or two people asked me to do them. So this is not going to resume to being a permanent feature. Um, but this month we will, we will do a couple. Um, and next month uh, we're going to switch it up a little bit, do something slightly less instructive. I'm going to be um, catching up with an old friend, John Fernandez, who recently was elected to the uh, U.S. Chess Board of Directors um, and has a successful career outside of chess, but he's always sort of uh, stayed stayed near the chess world, and he's got some great stories. And what the book we're going to discuss is uh, Chess is My Life by Grandmaster Victor Korchenoi. So uh, we're going to read a biography. He does have 15 games in the book as well, so we'll be able to talk some chess strategy and chess improvement as well as uh, diving into sort of the amazing life experience of uh, legendary Soviet and then former Soviet 
Grandmaster. So that should be fun as well, uh, coming hopefully in late October. Um, so Jesse, thanks again. Um, if people want to um, keep up with you, um, reach out, maybe study together or whatever it may be. What, what's the best way to keep up with you, Jesse? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jesse Shikarian. Um, yeah, I would love to do like a chess punk study group. That would be super cool. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, I'll link to that. And, um, and yeah, thank you again, Jesse, for suffering through this, this book that was a little bit too advanced for you. No, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it and I do appreciate it. So thank you, Jesse. And good, goodbye, everyone. Stay tuned if you want to hear the blindfold puzzles. Thank you. Hello there, blindfold chess wizards and aspiring blindfold chess wizards. We are back with the increasingly rare uh, blindfold chess puzzle special, special feature on the book recap podcast. And this is a Stafford Gambit special edition. Shout out to I am Eric Rosen. Both of these puzzles are taken from traps in the Stafford Gambit. Uh, here we go with number one. So we're going to read the moves from the starting position. These are not uh, setup positions. These are from the start. I'll try to go nice and slow. Uh, you can always go back and re-listen if you need to. And in the show notes, we will have a link to the position and then a link to the answer. So number one is the game begins E4, E5. White plays knight F3. Black plays knight F6. White plays knight takes pawn on E5. Black plays knight to C6. White plays knight takes knight on C6. Black plays D takes C6. White plays pawn to E5. Black plays knight to E4. White plays D3, question mark. Black plays bishop C5. Black takes the knight on E4. And now it is black to move and win. So I'll read the moves again, this time without commentary. E4, E5. Knight F3, Knight F6. Knight takes E5, Knight C6. Knight takes C6, D takes C6. E5, Knight E4, D3, Bishop C5. White plays D takes E4, and it is black to move, and they have a sequence that forces a win. Number two, and by the way, that first puzzle I'd say is maybe 14, 1500 level, and this one will be a little bit harder, um, but not super hard if you stick with it. So we're back at the starting position. E4, E5, knight F3, knight F6. Knight takes e5, black plays knight c6, knight takes c6, d takes c6. White plays knight to c3, black plays bishop c5. White plays bishop c4, black plays knight to g4. White castles, black plays queen to h4. White plays h3, black plays knight takes f2. White plays queen f3. Black plays knight takes h3 check. White plays king to h1. And now black can force checkmate in not that many moves. I'm not going to say how many, but see if you can find a checkmate, a forced checkmate for black. And I'll repeat that whole thing. White plays e4. 
Black plays e5. White plays knight f3. Black plays knight f6. White plays knight takes pawn. Black plays knight c6. White plays knight takes knight on c6. Black plays d takes c6. White plays knight to c3. Black plays bishop c5. White plays bishop c4. Black plays knight g4. White castles. Black plays queen h4. White plays h3. Black plays knight takes f2. White plays queen to f3. Black plays knight takes h3 check. White plays king to h1. And now it is black to move and force checkmate. So those are your two Stafford Gambit puzzles. Um, Let me know if you guys are still actually doing these blindfold puzzles. Maybe I'll try to do them slightly more often. But in any event, thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. And we will catch you all soon. Thank you to everyone who listens to and supports the podcast. And most of all, thank you to my producer, Matthew Passy. Be sure to check us out on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Official one We also have a Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we continue the conversation about each episode. I've even got the Instagram page locked and loaded, actually posting clips every week. So you can follow at Perpetual Chess to catch some clips there. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors, of course, uh, Chessable.com, the original sponsor of Perpetual Chess, Aim Chess, Chess Mood. Thanks. I'm proud to be affiliated with all of these sites. Um, Also want to thank Blue Wire Podcast, with whom I partner. Big shout out to Blue Wire. Check them out for sports podcasts. But most of all, I want to thank the individuals who helped make Perpetual Chess go via PayPal or Patreon. And of course, they get to find out the guests, send in questions, hear Uh, occasional GM lectures on Zoom, um, and even get ad-free podcasts. So thank you all for supporting Perpetual Chess and keeping it going. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LasmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog. Shout out to JB. Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson, I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Campus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nilsson, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King's Cell, King's Crusher YouTube channel, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nace Twitch channel, Peter McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Soddy, Philip Lummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gerson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, and Wayne Bean. I would also like to give thanks to... Ace Vallega, Adam Fowler, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, 
Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadai, sorry, Ken, Ken Kabadai, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens of Rose City Chess in Portland, Oregon, Chess for Charity in Jacksonville, Chess Patzer, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Chris, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Caros, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM, Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Perilla, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavoie, uh, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, uh, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, Howard V. Han, uh, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, Jay Tuttle, Jay Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Damas, Dekumus, excuse me, Jesse, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joe Th- Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagor, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfeller, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fredell, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky of Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emelu. Emelianova, aka Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matt Ferrari, Matthew Allen Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Milijanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, Pablo Davida, Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management uh, Limited of Switzerland, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Sampson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malugu, The Say Chess, Publishing, Unstoppable, Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCoggan, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller, and Tom George, uh, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edzel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, 
William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko, Zhivko Stoyanov. So thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you all next week. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.